We are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, but even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans in the South. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're really seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Uh, remember when there was dignity? Dignity, yeah, in our, <laughs> in our government, there was a lot of dignity. Really, if you're old enough to remember, it is true. Trump and Russia, Trump and Russia, Trump and Russia, except for the occasional intentional distractions like the bogus ban on transgender troops in the military, it has been Trump and Russia every day. For months, the impression impression broadcast by Trump's seemingly wild defensiveness is that he and Putin are close and that he's more than happy to serve the interests of the Russians in his role as president of the United States. And Republican members of Congress have been feeling the heat. They sure as heck don't want to be seen as kowtowing to Putin and Russia. So recently, Congress passed yet another sanctions bill, this time, so far anyway, against Russia, North Korea, and Iran. And who knows, they may add Venezuela to the mix. But this slap at Russia puts Trump in a very dicey position. So much to talk and learn about this rather dangerous new set of developments. Our guest today, once again, is Patrick Lawrence. Patrick, thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Oh, a pleasure always, Bert. This time I'm not in Norfolk, Connecticut, as usual, I'm in Manhattan, the wilds of Manhattan. The wild, nice to be here. Uh, wilds of Manhattan. And I know there are some canyons there. Well, Patrick Lawrence <laughs> is a writer and columnist. He's published five books and is now at work on his sixth. He served as correspondent abroad for many years and is also an essayist, editor, and critic. Lawrence has taught at universities in the U.S. and abroad and lectures widely. Uh, he, he currently produces two commentaries, weekly and bi-weekly, primarily on foreign affairs and the media. Apart from his, uh, uh, his staff work, Lawrence's reportage, commentary, essays, criticism, and reviews have appeared in the New York Times, Business Week, Time, the Washington Quarterly, World Policy Journal, The Globalist, The Nation, Asian Art News, and numerous other politicians. And I personally highly recommend his book, Time No Longer, Americans After the American Century. Boy, you sure had a vision on that one, just a little bit ahead of your time. Thank you, Bert. You're very kind about the book. I, I must say, with all detachment I can uh, muster, What's in that book published a few years ago is all out there in front of us now in spades. Absolutely, absolutely. It's all coming true. Well, as our guest, Patrick Lawrence, writes in The Nation, I believe, a veto by Trump would prompt howling accusations that he's playing into Vladimir Putin's hands, a veto of the 
just passed sanctions bill by Congress. How much of the purpose of the new sanctions bill is to show that Americans that Trump may be Putin's boy, but the Republicans in Congress are not? How much of this big international legislation is for domestic purposes, really? Uh, Bert, it's a good question. I think there are many dimensions to uh, this matter. Uh, One of them uh, reflects, indeed, as you say, a a kind of Republican rebellion against Trump. Yes, Uh, there's a very, very strong anti-Russian sentiment uh, on Capitol Hill, no issue, especially among Republican conservative Republicans. Uh, that's rather standard. We all know. Yeah. But we but we need to discriminate here. There there are other forces at work. Okay. Sure. There there are the intelligence agencies and the Pentagon, and by extension, uh, the Pentagon's extension in Europe, NATO. These are. Uh, large, powerful institutions uh, that wanted to have wanted for a long time and have made it clear enough to anyone who looks closely, they wanted to tie Trump's hands because they feared his thought of any kind of detente with Russia. It would be crushing to their... uh, foreign policy framework, right? Their pursuit of American primacy, uh, to put it in very simple terms. America needs an enemy, and we've settled on one, right? Uh, (laughs) So that also is a dimension of it. Uh, I I think another point that urgently needs to be made, uh, these sanctions are quite severe. They come on top of others, uh, of course. Um, they are exceedingly careless of European interests. We can go into that oh, if yes, you wish. Definitely. Um, so they're kind of scattershot in that way. Uh, the the Congress. I mean, the last person, the last people you want to have a, a great deal of say in the conduct of American foreign policy are right wing Republicans on Capitol Hill. They are really quite know nothing, but no. uh, yeah. uh, as to how the world works. Uh, uh, but uh, one other point, core point, uh, these sanctions are moving toward the core of the Russian economy, right? Yeah. Especially those involving the Europeans. They are an attack on Russian uh, energy uh, supplies, uh, gas and oil, sure. right? Uh, when you strike at the core of another nation's economy, this is customarily considered an act of war. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. You want to reference Japan, 1940-41, uh, when we struck at uh, the uh, imperial Japanese uh, economy by way of, of uh, sanctioning yes. various resources we knew the Japanese were desperate for, uh, tin, rubber, oil, and so on and so forth. It's an act of war. I mean, this is, I, I mention this because I, I think we all need to understand the gravity 
of what is happening in front of our eyes, right? Yes. Amazing, really. And I, I, I seriously doubt that those right-wing, knee-jerk members of Congress uh, are aware of such things. Well, what what is in this sanctions bill? Just to, to, to clarify it right in the beginning here, what is in this bill that the Republicans in Congress have put forward? Uh, it it, it confirms, it, it reaffirms and strengthens sanctions imposed by the Obama administration, uh, they like to say, uh, in, in response to uh, Russia's annexation of Crimea. That's problematic, okay? Uh, first of all, Russia's reincorporation of Crimea was conducted on the basis of a referendum that nobody has had the nerve to dispute. Uh, um, they will say it was illegitimate and this and that, but it is obvious. I mean, look, the population of Crimea is such that returning to Russian sovereignty is emphatically not a problem. I invite your listeners to consider how, how many reports have we heard about protests and violence and resistance and all that among Crimeans since the referendum conducted leading to reincorporation in the spring of 2014. None. I will answer the question. None. So uh, <laughs> the problem with this story is it was not uh, the, the Crimean reannexation was in response to the American cultivated coup in February of 2014. The problem is that that's been airbrushed out of the history of this problem, mm -hmm. of, 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 this, of this question, right? So the Obama sanctions were uh, put in place supposedly in uh, response to the Crimea situation. These new sanctions strengthen those, tighten those, but also shift authority over them to Congress. In other words, uh, oh, wow. Obama put those sanctions in place as an executive. They were executive orders. This is how these things are executed. Uh, the sanctions just imposed on President Maduro in Venezuela yes. were an executive order. They were announced by Treasury Secretary Mnuchin. Mm -hmm. uh, that's an executive order. Now, the new sanctions take away uh, the executive branch's authority oh. over those sanctions, oh. and they would be difficult to impossible to adjust or revoke without congressional approval. In other words, Capitol Hill is now in charge of these sanctions. That's a big problem. The Russians can look over Trump's shoulder and understand that perfectly well. That is uh, why. Now, another dimension of them that must be mentioned. Russia has various pipelines running from its gas fields yes. into European energy markets. Oh, uh, yeah, the statistics much. are quite uh, eye-opening. Uh, I think the Germans are something like 40% dependent on Russian gas, okay? Yeah. Mm -hmm. The continent in general is, is right up there uh, behind the Germans, okay? Now, 
there's a new one under construction called Nord Stream. It's going to run across the top of the continent uh, under the Baltic, I believe. And there are others in need of repair, reconstruction, and what have you. Okay. Then there are European companies that market Russian gas, so they have contracts. The new sanctions declare that any European company involved in these projects will also be sanctioned. That is probably uh, one of the most dangerous aspects of this law that uh, this bill Trump is about to sign. Two reasons. One, it is creating, uh, and it, it it is turning a drift in transit transatlantic relations into a breach, a rift, right? Uh, Two, this is what I mean by striking at the core of the Russian economy. Washington is trying to debilitate those pipelines vital to uh, Russia's energy sector as thoroughly as possible. That's a, we're getting quite uh, dangerous. We're not hearing gunshots yet, but I don't think you're your your listeners must not uh, mistake mistake a a bill right with with language in it uh, sanctioning companies as as anything less dangerous than open conflict okay uh, that's my point Boy, it's uh it's pretty amazing really i mean there's so much going on and uh to strike at their economy so hard and at the european economy uh, it just, it, it surprises me. Europeans are absolutely furious. Ah. And uh, the Senate, this is uh, actually how um, insensitive Capitol Hill can be to these situations. The Senate passed an early version of this sanction bill in June, all right? It went to the House, it had adjustments made in the House bill, went back to the Senate, the House approved, the Senate approved, and this second version is what's going to the White House. In the original version, the Senate said, these sanctions are intended to uh, further the interests of American energy exporters and create American jobs, the old thing, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. Meaning... uh, we are deploying geopolitical measures in the interests of American corporations. The, the Europeans were absolutely livid. I'm talking about at prime ministerial and, and foreign ministerial level, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the statements they made were, they were apoplectic. Uh, how dare you use uh, geostrategic considerations to force your way into our energy markets. To boot, we will be paying a lot more for American gas supplies than we are now paying for Russian. Uh, So some of that offensive language was stripped out of the revised bill that's now either headed for the Oval Office or has already arrived. But the intention is quite clear. That doesn't, stripping the language out, does not alter the intention, right? Uh, I invite your listeners to, to sort of step back and see the larger picture. The Ukraine crisis and the, yes. the coup America, Washington cultivated over quite a long period of time, yes. uh, um, is all related to this question of the European energy market, mm. right? Uh, mm. We are in, uh, I believe, a, a considerable 
surplus conditions by way of our energy production. Yes. We want new markets for our uh, natural gas production, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and we have said we, we, it, it's unlikely we can compete in Asia. Okay, uh, but uh, we have settled upon Europe. Oh. So Europe is kind of uh, a sort of zone of competition yeah. in this very, very large, consequential question of energy supply. And and American corporations want into that market. Sure. It would be hard to underestimate the importance of that. They do seem to uh, operate on one rather clear focus, profits, that's for sure. And uh, if you just tuned in, dear listener, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. And our guest today is Patrick Lawrence, uh, writer par excellence, reporter. And we're talking about uh, the new sanctions, uh, largely against Russia, but elsewhere as well, that that Congress is doing. And I mean, clearly, since the... The absolute shocker of November 2016, you know, when Trump beat uh, Hillary, uh, relations across the Atlantic have slipped steadily downhill. And you write that there's a chill in the transatlantic relations is very close to tipping into an historic breach. And I read that uh, European Commission President Jean-Claude Juncker has picked a fight with American senators, warning them that U.S. sanctions against Russia must not hurt the European Union's energy policies. He said, America first cannot mean Europe interests come last. And he said the U.S. bill could have unintended unilateral effects that impact the EU's energy security interests. That's some pretty uh, strong stuff, and uh, yes. the, the EU isn't getting any weaker, I don't think, among those right. uh, you know, nations. Uh, Bert, a little tiny bit of context here. Uh, the Europeans uh, took it very, very badly when Trump pulled out of the Paris Climate Accord. That accord, apart uh, apart from its uh, virtues as, as an effort uh, to... Uh, enter into this climate question in a, in a serious way, uh, setting aside all that, it was very symbolic for the Europeans. It was, uh, it was a measure of their capacity to act, uh, with unity after all this discombobulation and problems in the EU over the last few years, Greece, um, disputes about German power within the EU, Brexit, what have you. You know, the EU is not in great shape. European unity is, is not, uh, is, is not the blooming flower it used to be. Okay. So the Paris Accord was, was a symbol. uh, It it said, we can do this. Right. And so they took it very badly when Trump pulled out of it. Uh, And their reaction then was very strong. What we're hearing now in reaction to the sanctions bill, and you just quoted Juncker, uh, there's stronger language than that around, actually, uh, uh, is, is, must be understood in that context. They're quite upset, right? They're quite upset. They don't trust Trump. The question in my mind for, since the Paris Accord, actually, I happened to be in Europe at the time, fortuitously enough, uh, the question in my mind, has been, are they reacting to Trump 
in other words, are they personifying this problem? And when Trump is gone, right. good, we can return to post-war normal, as I put it. Uh-huh. Uh, or is this the is this the beginnings of a really substantial breach in transatlantic relations? Uh, I, I, I can, no mm. one can read it with full authority, right. but I'm I'm tipping in the uh, latter direction, okay? And what I have in mind is quite a lot of history. Let's let's wander back to the Cold War decades for a bit. Oh, sorry. For a very great part of the Cold War, uh, increasingly so as the decades wore on, the Europeans were rather tired of it. Don't forget, Ostpolitik, uh, Convergence, all these kind of things, d- detente writ large, these were greatly favored among the Europeans. And uh, our uh, insistence on maintaining a very high degree of tension, such as we are now, yeah, right? This, yeah. this is, in a certain way, a replay, irked uh, uh, the Europeans. And they came to understand, we don't have an independent foreign policy. Uh, there are historical reasons for that. Uh, but they they came to they came face-to-face with their own subservience to Washington in all matters having to do with global affairs. Uh, And they became restless. What I'm saying is, beneath the surface of all we're hearing now is a long, long history of this restlessness I'm trying to describe in just a few words. Um, and I, among many others, have waited for a long, long time, uh, and often with disappointment, to say, good, now, now the Europeans will learn to go their own way and we will have a useful uh, pole of power, an independent pole of power among the Europeans. Right? Uh, that would be fine, I would greatly favor it. But time and time again, they knuckle under, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, uh, uh, the question now is, will they do it again? That's what I mean by drifting toward an historic breach, right? It's a question, but it's a very good question now. Boy, it really is. Will they knuckle under again? And they are, you know, they are not the United States. And, you know, as you mentioned, at least since uh, the end of the Second World War, the U.S., so many people, especially Republicans in Congress, have felt, you know, this American exceptionalism, we lead the world, Mm. everybody else has to bow down to us. And, you know, other people aren't buying that. They have their own economies, as you said, in in Europe. Uh, I I had an interesting conversation with a British historian about a few years ago, and I asked him about this. I I said, I can't, I've never been quite able to register why the Europeans are so, are so pliant in the, in the face of uh, America's uh, insistence on one question or another, and even when it goes against European interests. And it was an interesting reply. He said, look, the last European leaders who had an experience of an independent Europe are gone, okay? The last of them were people like de Gaulle and Anthony Eden, right? Mm. Uh, uh, and uh, the, the leadership, post-war leadership, by and large, has had no experience of 
life other than under right. what we call in the Asian context the American security umbrella. They don't they don't have any experience of going their own way. They don't have any uh they 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 feel no capacity, they have no practice in in being able to in being able to say to Washington, this is what you want, this is what we want. We're going to go our own way on this. We're all friends. There's still a transatlantic alliance and all that, fine, but we're not doing it your way. They don't have the experience of that. No Phil had that experience, right? Yeah. Uh, but uh this this writer I was talking to, this historian said when when Britain, when Eden failed with the Suez Crisis in '56, that was the end, right? Uh, the the uh, uh, American primacy in the in the European context uh, took root at that moment, and it hasn't changed. Oh, wow. So we have a group of leaders, Merkel and. Uh, needless to say, young people like Macron, who have no experience of a, a of an independent-minded continent. Does this new sanctions uh, bill, as it is now, you know, greatly uh, threatening Europe's ability to get its needed energy? D- does this have an effect? Do you think of of uh, pushing them toward Russia, since they don't have any experience? Either, I mean, of standing up to the U.S., uh, c- could it backfire? And actually, uh, could could they line up more with Putin's Russia against us, or is that just too far? Uh, it's it's a really good question. Um, I don't think anybody in Europe is talking now about. Uh, I think there's what I'm describing is. Uh, please let's be careful. A rift within the transatlantic alliance. I'm not talking about anybody disposing of the transatlantic alliance, okay? Uh-huh. But, and so it, it, in that respect, the answer is no. However, uh, looking longer term, um, uh, America has essentially foregone uh, its... America is in the process of foregoing its claim to global leadership. There's no, there's no, there's not sufficient vision. There's not sufficient exposure. There's not sufficient acceptance of alternative points of view. All of these things are absolutely essential to anybody who claims to lead the world in the 21st century. Let's face it, we just don't have these things, right? We're too large a country. We have an ocean on either side of it. uh, And we're very stubborn, and we're we're used to our power. So we don't have these capacities. That's a reality, right? Well, what about... We can put it down to Donald Trump, but I don't... uh, uh, I don't buy that. Uh, I, I think uh, Trump, uh, as I may have said on your program uh, once before, Trump is consequence. He's not a cause of anything. Uh, He's a uh, symptom. And uh, I, I think uh, so. Let's put. Let's not. Let's not concentrate all this in Donald Trump. Oh right. This well, is a problem Americans and leadership in Washington have had long before Donald Trump. We don't see the world properly. We prefer to tell ourselves stories that make (laughs) us feel strong and powerful, even if they contradict reality. (laughs) It's a problem. Now, Europe. uh, Well, uh, I I wanted to ask... Europe, 
could be very key to the direction uh, uh, of global affairs in coming years if, returning to your question, they decide to uh, rotate somewhat mm-hmm. toward the non-West, Russia, China. China right. There are plenty of reasons for this. Russia, China, Japan. Um, uh, there are plenty of reasons for it. And I say rotate, but so, uh, again, yeah. not to break the American right. alliance. Two, uh, they, 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 would, they would have to make a very big decision that way. And there are signs they are thinking about it. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, but two, uh, they have to come to terms with their periphery. Right, they yeah. have to come to terms with the with North Africa, the Middle East, Turkey, and so on. Right, uh, yeah. and uh, the the, the republics of the former Soviet Union and all that. They haven't come to terms with all this, right? Immigration and the, all the questions surrounding yeah. Islam and so on and so forth. So they have to do that too. But they could, Bert. Right, it's a it's hmm. a long century. You know, uh, I, I don't claim any crystal ball or, or exceptional wisdom, but these questions are are there. They are worth thinking about. But in the immediate term, no, we're not going to see any radical rupture between Washington and the European capitals. Well, that that's a good thing to hear, because uh, we do like to uh, travel and be friends uh, with our you know people on the other side of the ocean. And just before we get on to Russia and China, I did want to ask, you know, the, the U.S. petroleum interests have been powerful for a long time, really powerful. Is, are they somehow, is there a real change in how powerful they are now, the U.S. petroleum interests, compared to Obama's, or is it pretty much the same? Because, I mean, they, they want to uh, yeah, monopolize. Another interesting question. We have, um, we have a somewhat unqualified Secretary of State who used to be the CEO of ExxonMobil. I invite your listeners <laughs> to consider how likely that might have been uh, in any administration uh, yeah. our side of Kennedy, apart from Reagan. He was into these people, too. Remember, people like Cap Weinberger were, were Bechtel, right? Oh, right. Uh, Thank uh, you for reminding uh, 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 A company closely related to many, involved in many energy mega project projects, right? Oh, so sure. uh, I, I think the energy sector in America has, for some long while, yeah. had a very outsized influence. Tillerson's um, presence in Washington, um, he's not kind of breaking the banks and running all sorts of inappropriate forward interference for for the oil companies, so far as we can see. But uh, certainly, they are making themselves heard. Now, uh, let us not excuse uh, our Nobel Peace Peace Prize winner, Barack Obama. Mm -hmm. Okay, Mm -hmm. Uh, During his administration, the long campaign I mentioned earlier uh, to... uh, rip Ukraine 
westward, uh, culminating in the February 2014 coup, was very considerably about energy resources. We've just mentioned this earlier, okay? Those pipelines I referred to running from Russia into European markets, uh, one or more of them uh, of great importance runs through Ukraine. Uh, the problem there has been the Ukrainians were stealing gas as the as supplies passed through their territory. Sure, sure. Um, Why not? Uh, and uh, the campaign to bring Ukraine westward had a very pronounced um, dimension of it uh, having to do with energy. Sure. Right? Uh, oh, yeah, Chevron, among other companies was looking very closely uh, at what it might do in Ukraine, right? Uh, and so um, I can't give you a night-and-day answer. I think Tillerson's presence as Secretary of State right. is something we should watch. Yes. Uh, ener- American energy companies now are complaining, rather like the Europeans, uh, that these new sanctions are going to ruin their interests with Russia. So everybody's tumbling over uh, <laughs> each other on this point, right? Uh, yeah. um, but I, you know, I, I find that I find the, the, the presence of an Exxon CEO at the State Department yeah. a little weird. Yeah. But that's not the State Department's biggest problem, of course. The State Department's biggest problem is the Pentagon. Well, we've seen that in previous administrations as well, the State Department being completely overlooked, diplomacy being uh, you know, shunted aside, but it is what it is. And really, to have the yeah. head of Exxon as Secretary of State is, is rather astounding in and of itself. And, uh, my jaw dropped when the appointment was announced. Oh, my God, I know. Um, it, 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 uh, looking at Russia and China, it was the case for a really long time. I mean, I know in the U.S. people somehow thought of this you know, monolithic communist bloc. It wasn't the case. It was the case for a long time that Russia and the Chinese governments have not been close. There was a great deal of mistrust. And your article points out specific examples of the two working together much more closely now. I I, I wonder what those are. And uh, actually, you mentioned that Russia and China uh, on the same day the House voted the sanctions bill back to the Senate. Russia and China held their first ever naval exercises in the Baltic Sea. Uh, yes. L- let's talk about that. That's okay. fairly intense. Um, the, the, uh, the fantasy in Washington has been for a while um, to play the Chinese off the Russians. Okay, This notion is so stale uh, it's got mold on it, Bert, right? Uh, there was at one time, very famously, a Sino-Soviet split, okay? Yep. This was during the Maoist period, and the Soviets were cast as what are known as revisionists. They they were not faithful to a pure form of communism. They were bad people, mm-hmm. right? So, mm-hmm. and, and there was a lot of animosity between China and the Soviet Union, to the extent that Henry Kissinger spotted an opening and exploited the Sino-Soviet split, as it's known, uh, uh, to the benefit of 
the Nixon administration. It was an extraordinary stroke on Kissinger's part. Anybody, anybody with a balanced view of things would have to say that. Whatever else one thinks of Henry, uh, but that's no longer there. Okay, what we've seen uh, since increasingly since uh, the uh, end of the Soviet period is a, a gradual drawing together between China and Russia, the Russian Federation. Uh, there are a number of ways to look at it. Certainly, uh, hard economic self-interest has a very, very great deal to do with it. Okay. Uh, you mentioned military. We'll get to that in a minute. The basis of this is is economic, okay? You've, you've had... I think the historically the largest natural gas deal ever struck was uh, signed by uh, Xi Jinping and uh, Putin in Shanghai a few years ago. Okay, huge. Another one followed that. You've got uh, industrial investment. You've got financing. You've got all manner of things, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, coming on top of that. Now, we mustn't overestimate the pace and uh, substance of this. It's it's slow, okay? Uh, but um, the newest, or among the more recent dimensions, let's say, is military cooperation. Right. Uh, they've been at it for a few years. Uh, last year, Quite remarkably, I, I invite your listeners to consider the following list. Between last year and this, they have run joint naval exercises. The naval exercises, by the way, are, are an add-on to military ex- ground force exercises. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so they have run uh, joint naval exercises in the following places. The South China Sea, the Eastern Mediterranean, and now the Baltic. Yeah. Uh, think about those three places. South China Sea, point of very serious friction between uh, Washington and Beijing. The Eastern Mediterranean, ditto between <laughs> Moscow and Washington, yeah. uh, with Syria and so on. Yeah. The Baltics, what do we have? Six six NATO members with frontage on the Baltic Sea? Yeah. Uh, what what are they do? Are these coincidences? I'm hard pressed. Uh, I, uh, what are they saying? Well, publicly they're saying no, no. Just just take it easy. These are just naval exercises. No, yeah. no hidden meaning here. But of course, uh, that is what one would expect people to say, leaders to say in these sort of situations. I don't think they're suggesting any urgent situation in, in need of urgent attention. But what I detect, and I lived in Asia nearly 30 years, uh, I, I often think, remind myself, of the extent to which Westerners miss the fundamental identity of Asians as non-Western people. Uh, and I detect in this closeness, uh, this increasing, this kind of building closeness between Russia and China, all very material, all very to do with self-interest and so forth, as earlier discussed. But I detect in it a a, a certain non-Western 
a certain common identity as non-Western people, okay? Uh, uh, the book before the one you kindly mentioned when I come on your show was called Somebody Else's Century, right? Oh, uh, okay. And the subtitle was East and West in a Post-Western World. That's what's going on out there, I invite your listeners to consider. Uh, well, well, what's... Uh, the non-West is not only emerging because of exceedingly lively economies and stock markets and what have you, consumer markets and all the rest of it, it's a kind of identity bird, you mm-hmm. know. Uh, people are, uh, people are uh, uh, intuitively understand that 500 years of Western dominance yeah. is drawing to a gradual close. It's going to be another kind of planet. Right, uh, uh, and Russia, China thing—that's the larger context I judge it within. Yeah, and so what about these six nations on the on the shorelines on the Baltic? So there's, uh, if I get this right, and I, I may not, there's Finland, Norway, Sweden, Denmark, uh, Latvia, Lithuania, the three, Estonia. The three, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, the but they're Western. I mean, clearly they are Western, and yet there's been some Russia and China naval exercises there. I wonder how that affects them. It's really, you know, Bert. There, there are some nations that are quite interesting uh, to me if you travel in them. Yes, they are Western, but they have uh, many aspects of the Eastern character. Right? For example, huh. the Finns. We, they're quite. Western in in Many ways. ways we would customarily judge people, yes, but they have an exceedingly strong sense of community, uh-huh. which is a non-Western characteristic. Right? Clearly, it's a qualified notion of the Western individual. Right. All right. Right. Uh, Big difference. They have a different attitude toward the role of the state in the polity. Right, mm-hmm. we don't like states. We don't even use the word. Right, uh, we we don't like big government, as we like to put it. Right. Well, they do like big government. That's a non-Western. You know, look at the Eastern nations: Japan, China, Korea. They all have very strong state sectors. Oh yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. Uh, and so, yes, they are Western, but in some ways they are not. It's just a side point uh, uh, in response to your remark. You know, I, I I think the thing about these nations you just named, especially the three Baltics, <laughs> that's like having uh, Russian troops or what have you in Quebec, right? Uh, uh, it, it's we are right on Russia's border, right? uh, yeah. and uh, I find it not the slightest bit remarkable. Yeah, Th- that the Russians are made nervous by this. Of course, right? they've been invaded from the West. This morning's New York Times left-hand side of the front above the fold saying uh, Russian activity on the Baltic border. Uh, I forget the rest of the head is making people nervous or whatever. Okay, that means the Russians are running uh, some kind of exercises. Sure. On their side of the border, it, next to the Baltic states, they are they are on Russian soil. What is causing nerves? NATO, uh, right? Uh, uh-huh. <laughs> you see what I mean? Oh yeah. You, 
we had a British official the other couple of months ago talking about how uh, British troops, as part of some NATO contingent in the Baltics, were defensive. What? <laughs> we've, 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 by incessant repetition, we've actually persuaded ourselves that vigorously offensive positions in the eastern end of Europe are defensive. Uh-huh, right? uh-huh, sure. I mean, like Ukraine, for sure, was there. And uh, circling back a little bit to good old Russia, they, they've they often said through the years that they seek to improve relations with the United States. At least they say that. And to me, anyway, I, I have no doubt that one of the reasons they apparently supported Trump over Hillary Clinton was her openly aggressive stances toward Russia, supporting NATO expansion, you know, being right there with the Ukraine coup. Now, during his campaign, Trump promised to try to improve U.S.-Russian relations. And, and Trump had talked about during his campaign of improving ties with Russia and had praised Mr. Putin. The Kremlin had expected mm -hmm. the face-to-face -face meeting of the presidents to mark the start of a new era. Now, in yes. the wake of the sanctions bill, Russia has demanded the dismissals of 755 employees of the American embassy there. What the heck? Well, uh, on on the dismissal, to take your last point first, uh, it, in the in the scheme of things, that's quite a mild uh, response. It's two thirds of the embassy staff, right? That's big, yes, but a great many of those people are Russian employees. Oh yeah, most okay? of them. Yeah. So uh, they're going to have to fix their own. The Americans are going to have to fix their own toilets and and. <laughs> Uh, you know, yeah. uh, brew, brew their own coffee in the morning. Okay, but uh, the the diplomatic uh, interesting the, the subtraction of actual diplomats, I, from what I'm hearing, is likely to be quite minor. Okay, and uh, among all the things that the Kremlin could have done in response to the sanctions, it, it's hard to think of anything uh, less. Uh, uh -huh. You know, it's hard, le less danger. It's not a danger. You know, it's not a dangerous move. It's a it's a severe whack at the State Department. Yes, it is. P Putin, make no mistake, is quite. I was going to say furious. Let's just say deeply disappointed. He wants better relations with the United sure. States and sees no reason they are not possible to mutual benefit. Uh, but uh, these sanctions kind of seal the deal. It's just not going to happen, and he's deeply disappointed. Yes, he pinned his hopes on uh, Trump because of what Trump had said last summer. Uh, I must add instantly, I buy into none of this junk about bromance and all that. That's, that's just that's just silly <laughs> oh, that, caricature that the media... Oh. I was going to say Trump, uh, that the media... Uh, <laughs> manufacture in order to make Trump look silly, right? Yeah. There's enough and, real stuff there. Yeah. Trump has had, so far as I can make out, very few stable ideas on the foreign policy side. But he has had a few. And among them has been better relations with Europe. He stuck with it remarkably with remarkable consistency, okay? And it's been like watching a TikTok. Every, every time he makes a move to 
put his to begin pursuing the detente policy he has uh, said many times he favors something else happens for example the mm. the meeting with putin in uh, at the g20 um humberg yeah uh it, it was very interesting the way that unfolded uh trump had no particular agenda at least not one he shared with anybody and uh the the foreign the contention over foreign policy in in the administration uh, puts Trump on one side and the Pentagon on the other basically hmm. uh, and the Pentagon there's an axis between Defense Secretary Mattis and um, McMaster don't forget McMaster's a retired general he's a military man uh, uh, and so McMaster National Security Advisor was Mattis's conduit into the White House. At the last minute, this is so interesting, it's just a detail, uh, but quite an interesting one. At the last minute, Trump turned to McMaster and said, you're not coming into the meeting. Um, and so he was excluded. Ah. Right In that meeting, Trump laid the groundwork for all manner of pretty good ideas, Bert. Huh. Um Cooperation on the Syria crisis, let's oh, nice. resolution. Oh, yeah. Uh, cooperation on cybersecurity, good. I say good, right? Uh, this was described afterwards as complete madness, and I don't buy that. Um, uh, but working together era, on... Right, uh, and what happened? It was really the moment you described just a minute ago. Wow, we're really going to get this done. Uh, various people, and certainly the Russians, said, yeah, right? Yeah. What happened? He came home. I forget the next little piece of garbage they came out with. Uh, I think it might have been the, I think it might have been the Trump Jr. meeting with oh, right. Russian lawyer or something. You know, something popped out of the woodwork, woodwork before Trump's plane even touched down in Washington, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, uh, why did that happen? They they have a hundred such little incidents in the inventory in my reading. Yes, I'm not I'm there, sure. I confess, but reading oh, into this, sure. the people who oppose Trump on Russia have a very, very well-stocked pantry of things they can pull out whenever they need to and Trump down again, right? And that's what's happened. What a month after the Humboldt meeting, he's now forced into a corner, and he has to sign a very severe sanctions bill that goes against everything he's ever wanted to accomplish with Russia. That's what's going on. Huh? It's yeah, very, very and it, it wouldn't it be nice to cooperate with Russia on Syria and on ISIS? And I imagine they'd like to do that, and even to cooperate with Iran. But they're all part of yeah. this uh, new sanctions thing. It yeah, yeah. I, I, parenthetically, I, a friend, a good friend, uh, quite well wired in to Washington, uh, came back from a few days down there. I guess ten days ago. I, I asked him what was what was his read. He had a number of interesting conversations on his agenda, and he said they are absolutely sanctions happy. Watch out! There are oh, going to be no. sanctions here, there, and everywhere. And my goodness, was was my colleague right? Wow! Uh, <laughs> well, Iran, Korea, Russia, Venezuela, 
Um, I think Korea twice. I think Iran twice. Oh, yeah. But the big ones are Russia. Sanctions, sanctions, sanctions. Uh, uh, <laughs> I think they're... Bert, may I make a larger point? Oh, sure. I think that um, what we are witnessing in Washington today has a limited amount to do with Donald Trump. Once again, I, I interpret him as a symptom sure. and not a cause. Right. He's a symptom of the larger problem. Oh. And the larger problem is this. For too, too long, Washington has operated with a very unrealistic view of how the world works and where it's headed. Uh, the policy people in Washington, very broad, large community, uh, defined broadly, uh, the policy people in Washington uh, in, insist on maintaining American primacy yes. in the face of all evidence that it cannot be maintained other than by force. And I think what we're watching now is uh, the kind of collision of the Washington worldview with the world various manifestations <laughs> of 21st century reality and it's it's a car crash and and it's 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 with this perspective that I don't get too excited about Donald Trump he's not it's bigger than Donald Trump I'm not into personification. Yeah, it's not. He's too easy to uh, to personify. I did want to ask, maybe there's one good aspect of this. You know, the Constitution of the United States very clearly specified, specified that only Congress may declare war. Of course, there's been a whole lot of wars, unofficial wars, I guess, many times since... Well, Con the big difference, Bert, is we don't capitalize the W. <laughs> <laughs> but this new bill, I wanted to ask... It places constraints on the president's ability to conduct foreign policy on his own. Is that a, is that a good thing? No. I, I Look, I, my view here is we've been watching this for a year, right? Yeah. Democrats hate Trump. They want him out. That does not justify making use of spooky agencies who operate invisibly in order to get him out. The means is all wrong toward the end. Oh, okay. Ditto. Even if you're sitting on Capitol Hill and you say, I hate those Russians. Right. Trump's going to, we have to, we have to make sure, I don't want good relations with Russia. That's okay if that's your view. Right. It's certainly not mine, and right. needless to say, but uh, right. uh, if that's your view, that once again does not justify what they have just done, right? Any sound foreign policy is not going to be conducted by a, a legislature. Not the Japanese Diet, not the Russian Duma, yeah. not the French Assembly, not the British Parliament, and go on and on, right? Uh, uh, it, it is not how you do it. it, it it's going to produce incoherence, uh, it is going to produce yet more of what we already suffer from paralysis. And if you think, if you think that what I just referred to as the policy experts are living a bit tragically in the past, 
wait till you see what Capitol Hill's idea of how the world works turns out to be. Oh, lovely. Right? Always People so... People think it's about 1952. <laughs> well, here we are, well into the 21st century. Always interesting to talk to you, Patrick. Well, you you got a website. Sure. What can you point, to, point people to if they want to check out more of your stuff? Uh, I have a website. Um, it's called patricklawrence.us. That's what I thought. At foregone.com. Um, uh-huh. uh, and it's got archives. Thank you for asking. It's got archives. It's got access to my books. And I keep a journal there. I am not as faithful to it as I yeah, wish well, I could be. But I sure. get entries in there, thoughts on this and that, uh, for for the benefit of always appreciate it. trouble with them. Always appreciate it. US, and they can always write to me there, too. Thank you so much. Always interesting. Look forward to speaking with you again. And uh, every now and then there's some hopeful stuff. This wasn't one of them. Oh, yeah, yeah. There's plenty. <laughs> we, need to, we need to figure out a way to discuss it, Bert. All to be, all to be considered uh, over a coffee at that splendid place on the... Ah, yes, indeed. I'll, I'll make it. <laughs> all right. Thank you so much, Patrick Lawrence, Pleasure. for being with us and keeping democracy alive. And here's a little Randy Newman to sing about Putin. Siberian plane. He can power a nuclear reactor with the left side of his brain. And when he take his shirt off, he drive a lady's crazy. When he take his shirt off, make me want to be a lady. It's the Putin girls. I'm almost ashamed The Mediterranean Now there's a resort Worth fighting for If only the Greeks or the Turks Would start to sniff around Well I'd bring the hammer down So quick their woolly heads would spin Woolly head, woolly head, woolly head Oh wait a minute Even better what if the Kurds got in the way? Hey, Kurds and way, Kurds and way. Sometimes a people is greater than their leader. Germany, Kentucky, and France. Sometimes a leader towers over his country. One shot at the 